0: Hey, Krissa. Hi, Felice. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you walked into a library in Brooklyn?
1: You know, I do, and it's because it was a very specific grad school assignment. I went to library school, so I am a librarian, Mm. and we were given the task to go visit a library. It wasn't supposed to be a public library. It could be any kind of library, but Mm. I live in Sunset Park. So I walked into the building at what was then 51st Street and 4th Avenue. It's this tiny squat very unassuming looking building from the outside, uh, or it was. And uh, it was just cacophonous. It was so Mm. noisy in there. Every single chair had a body in it. Sometimes there were two kids in a chair in front of the kid computer because they were playing one of the kid games. And there were, you know, folks doing Chinese brush painting. There were kids playing games on their phones. And I knew nothing about public libraries. I was my first year in grad school. And I just immediately got it. I immediately... Mm. Became an advocate for a library being as loud as it wants to be mm-hmm. because the people in it feel comfortable enough to just be themselves in mm. the library you know it 's a symbiotic relationship where the branch needs the people and the people need the space and I just I loved it. I loved it immediately that's amazing <laughs> Thank you for sharing that what about uh, what about you what's your first memory of a library?
0: My first memory of a library is not an actual memory, but I know it exists because I have a picture of it so <gasps> When I was in nursery school, I drew a picture that I still have of myself as a librarian. You're kidding. I am not kidding because that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Oh, my gosh. Because in nursery school, the librarian was in charge of all of the books and books were where Adventure and Magic lived. And at that age, it didn't occur to me that somebody had to write those books. I just thought the librarian is the guardian of all of this magic. Sure. I adore her. I want to be her. And the books were places of magic. Yeah. And they the librarian still are. was
1: the guardian of magic. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of why we decided to start this podcast, actually, mm-hmm. just because, you know, our librarians still feel that way that yeah. the library is magic, that their work is magic. And so this podcast is here to bring you that magic. We're going to bring you the stories that start at the library. And most of the time I'm not working on a podcast. I'm the director of engagement for our marketing team, which means I sit in front of a computer and build emails and make our website look as good as we can make it
0: look. But when I'm not doing that, I'm co-hosting this podcast with you, Felice. Yes, And I'm usually working in the adult learning center at the central library as a literacy advisor. So we work with adults who are reading nothing at all, up to those who want to get their high school equivalency diplomas. So I support a lot of instruction and support our volunteer tutors. um, And pretend I'm a librarian. (laughs) (laughs) So are we ready? I'm ready. All right, welcome to the very first episode of Borrowed. Every other week, we're gonna take you to a place you've probably already been and help you see it in a whole new way. We're gonna bring you stories of people who work at the library and people like you who use it. So let's start where all great libraries start, with books. This is the sound of a massive scanner in a warehouse in Long Island City, Queens.
1: A huge conveyor belt zips by at eye level with books and DVDs from all over Staten Island, Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. This
2: is
0: our automatic
2: sorter. To process six books per second. Every given day, we'll do about 40,000 items. The machine has the capabilities of doing about 12,800 items per hour with almost 100% accuracy.
0: Just in case you missed that, this huge machine is sorting six books a second.
1: Sal Magadino is the Deputy Director for Logistics at BookOps, the company that runs book circulation for Brooklyn Public Library and our partners, the New York Public Library. He walked a group of us around the facility to show off this impressive machine.
2: The most important part of this machine is that red scanner. If you look at that scanner, it's reading a barcode, querying the ILS. Within 100 milliseconds, by the time the book makes the first turn, it knows where branch is going to. Let's go around, let's take a look at some books falling.
0: That clunking sound you hear is the sound of a book being shot off the conveyor belt and into a gray plastic bin. The scanner knows where the book belongs, and the massive machine has the ability to rotate the belt at just the right moment to deposit the book into the correct bin. Those gray plastic
1: bins, each labeled with a library branch name, they're loaded onto the trucks for delivery. Every single day, Book Ops circulates about 40,000 materials, and truck drivers visit over 150 different locations all across New York City. That's not even counting the dozens of senior centers in Brooklyn that also get book deliveries.
0: There are actually so many stops that deliveries to Manhattan branches and other traffic-heavy parts of the city are made at night, while the rest of the branches get their shipments during the day. All of this works so that in just a
1: day or two, the cookbook that you requested from King's Highway branch will be sitting on the shelf at your local library, Clinton Hill, say, or Canarsie, humbly waiting for you to stop by and check it out.
0: And in New York City, we go big. This past year, 7.4 million materials made their way around Manhattan, the Bronx, Staten Island, and Brooklyn, and about 1 million new books were added. But
1: before any of those new books can find their homes, they have to be assigned a specific set of numbers and letters. That is, they have to be cataloged. That process also happens at Book Ops. Steve Pisani oversees about 45 catalogers there.
0: We catalog um, as many as 16 world languages, and for Berkeley, the dominant languages would be um, Russian and Chinese, and then for New York, that would also include Spanish language would be one of the dominant languages. But we also catalog Hindi, French, Urdu, Bengali, Yiddish, Hebrew, Japanese, Korean, Polish, Arabic, German, Hungarian, Italian, and English. That is a lot of languages. It's the library system's job to decide how to distribute the books across the branches. Which neighborhoods would read Russian books, or Urdu, or Korean books? not to mention all the holds that are requested every day. Kind of makes your head spin. Chrissa, you're a librarian, so you know books didn't always circulate like this with a big noisy scanner and hundreds of employees offsite in Queens.
1: Right. Brooklyn Public Library actually used to house all of those operations in the branches themselves, and most of the processing work was done right here at Central Library.
3: The lobby here at Central used to be full, you know, one into the other with card catalogs. Some old Brooklynites still call it the catalog room. That's
1: Diana Bowers-Smith, an archivist for the Brooklyn Collection at BPL. She does tours of the building pretty regularly, and she talked to some of us about the historical details here in the library.
3: We have these incredible pictures of, you know, the processing area and just all these desks like piled with books and stamps and all the different things that they had to do to get books ready to circulate, um, including a photo of this huge machine that they used to print the cards for the card catalog. Prior to that, prior to being able to like mechanically print them, you actually had to learn in library school a special handwriting called Library Hand so that you could ensure that the cards you wrote for the card catalog would be legible and consistent.
1: Library hand is such an interesting tidbit from the past. Maybe you've seen it in the back of an old library book that you bought at a used book sale. It's incredibly neat and exacting. They had to use this special ink and make sure that the letters were spaced a certain distance apart, though it's not particularly efficient to hand catalog a million new books a year.
0: Diana did tell us about another aspect of circulation that was incredibly efficient, maybe too efficient. So back in the day, after the books were catalogued, many of them went into storage in the basement of Central Library in the decks. That's what we call the four floors below ground. And to get the books up from the basement to the patron who requested the title, there was basically a book vacuum. Um, so it's back here. It's always like blocked by carts, so
3: let me just move these. Diana
0: pushes back a few carts loaded with books to reveal what looks like plumbing. So
3: this is it. So these are the pneumatic tubes. Um, you still see them at banks. I saw one at a Costco once, um, but they used to be a lot more common in businesses. And basically, it's like a, a tube with suction. And you could put any kind of message or check or money in a cylindrical container and it would get sucked up the tube. Um,
0: To request the book you would first go to the card catalog and look for it.
4: The card index is the key to the library's usefulness. Books that cannot be found are useless.
0: This is archival sound from the New York Public Library describing a similar system in the 1950s.
4: Call slips when presented are dispatched by pneumatic tubes to the stacks where a library employee begins the search.
3: But the interesting thing about this is it's not just the traditional round tubes, but they also have this rectangular tube, which they would use to send books around the building as well.
4: When requested books reach the main reading room, they are taken to the delivery desk. Each order has been numbered. A switch is thrown and the indicator flashes the number for the waiting reader.
3: And then when your book was ready, you'd have been assigned a number and that gray screen there, your number would pop up.
0: Fun fact, you can actually still see that gray screen with the flashing order numbers in the lobby of Central Library. It's right above the door near the cafe, and it still works. This book
1: vacuum system was in use from 1955 until sometime in the 1970s. Felice, it's fascinating to think about all of these objects that we no longer have use for, the stamps, the card catalogs, library hand, and even these pneumatic tubes. Sometimes I see people geeking out about these things or feeling super nostalgic about the paper products that we used to use. You know, you can buy those socks online now with the old catalog cards printed on them. But I don't know. There's a reason we got rid of these obsolete tools. We actually have a much better system now. Books aren't flying around the building and exploding from the pressure, and librarians can spend their time doing other work. Online cataloging its a pretty incredible thing.
0: And there are still humans who coordinate book circulation. Perhaps one of the most personal pieces of Brooklyn's enormous circulation service is housed in the basement of New Utrecht Branch in Brooklyn's Bentonhurst neighborhood.
4: We have approximately out to maybe 10, 15 regulars that call regularly. And um, some you don't understand what they're saying because of uh, whatever illness they may have had that cause their speech to slur. Usually they give it to me because I decipher their voices and what they're saying. Judith Blaze coordinates the books by mail and the books to
1: go services. She sits at a desk covered in letters from patrons. Sometimes the letter is a request for the latest James Patterson novel, or it's a newspaper clipping for a political history book that the patron wants to read.
0: A good portion of Judith's day is spent on the phone talking to patrons. Usually, it's about a book they want to read, or an interesting fact they came across in a book. But sometimes, the
4: phone call is more personal. Some just tell us, it's my birthday. <laughs> and they just want to say, it's my birthday, I'm 99 years old. And you're like, oh my god, gosh, 99, congrats! And then they get excited, and then send them a little card or something, and they enjoy it.
0: Most of the patrons that use books by mail are homebound, by Judith's count, The age range of the patrons is from 17 to 104. But it's not just about the books. Judith says a
1: big part of the service for some of her regulars is that personal interaction over the phone.
4: The biggest difference, of course, is you don't see their faces, um, but you can hear in their voices the the urgency of whatever it is they're looking for. Um, I would get calls for, I want to know more about Alzheimer's. Not that I have it but I just want to know more information about it. You know that they're going through some kind of trauma and as much information as you can get them on that topic, they would appreciate it. And they'll end up personalizing, well I know somebody who's going through, and and it's just a conversation. It's the ability to be able to relate to somebody or to help somebody, um, which is basically what a librarian does, is you help the patrons. Judith's small
1: team of librarians in the basement of New Utrecht Library preside over the biggest collection of large print books in the BPL system. There are audiobooks, too, and movies. Since most of their patrons are seniors at home or at senior centers around Brooklyn, Judith and her team try to order books and movies that they think the seniors will enjoy in the format that's going to be the most accessible to them. But
4: sometimes their patrons surprise them. When Fifty Shades came out, I didn't think I would get requests, so I passed on purchasing both the book, and when the movie came out, I passed on it. And then the calls started coming in, and they were hushed. Do you have that book, Fifty Shades? And I'd go, why do you want the book? Listen, I lived been there done that i just want to know what the book is about and then all of a sudden there was an onslaught well do you have it in large print can i get the large print version and it made me go wait a minute and then i had to think they lived (laughs) why do i think like they didn't have that life before it's not new for judith
0: book circulation is intensely personal Having a book in your hand, for free, from anywhere in the library system, is not something she takes lightly.
4: This world gets a, can be a little cruel towards seniors, so if I can give them what they enjoy, and, and if it's in a book, and escape to from where they are, I'm going to do it, you know, and hopefully when I get older, somebody will think of me that way and do the same. To me you know and that's i think one of my biggest motivations you know just being able to help somebody else and you know and hope that you know later on down the line you know, it was worth it
0: so you just heard a whole lot about books and hopefully now you want to go read one well you're in luck Every episode of Borrowed will have a book match segment curated for you by one of our librarians, so you can read a book or two about the topic of each episode. This week, librarian Amy Michael has a list of book recommendations
1: just for you. I'll let her take it from here.
2: Hi, my name is Amy Michael, and I am a librarian out of the Central Library here. And I'm going to share with you five books that I picked in relation to the theme of this episode, um, books are not dead. So, My first pick is just this really delightful book called All the Time in the World, A Book of Hours by Jessica Kerwin Jen- Jenkins. And I really can't remember how I first came across it, but it's just this really charming collection of vignettes and anecdotes about how people across cultures and across eras have spent their hours, so how do they spend their time? When I read this book, I really feel a sense of peace and a sense of connection across time and place with people, other people who are just looking to pass the time, as they've done for hundreds of years. Next, I have a book called Exit West, which was a novel published last year written by Pakistani author Mohsin Humid. And the story introduces us to two young lovers, so Saeed and Nadia. Their homeland is on the brink of civil war, it's just like teetering on the brink. And all other possibilities to flee the country have been completely cut off. Said and Nadia don't know what to do, but they learn that they can gain passage um, out of the country via a series of secret doors. So the storytelling in this book really focuses on the relationship between Said and Nadia. The myriad kind of new dangers, the shifting politics, the allegiances, everything you're grappling with when you just leave your homeland and go something, somewhere else. And then I also have a graphic novel here called The Best We Could Do. It's, in fact, it's an illustrated memoir by T. Bui. She writes about her parents' experience leaving Vietnam in the midst of the war and coming to America. And then about their experience building new lives for their family here and then ultimately about her own experience becoming a mother and finding new meaning behind this concept of sacrifice for your family. So if you haven't read a graphic novel before, this is a great one to start with. Okay, I heard about this book from another librarian. It's called Just My Type by Simon Garfield, and it's a crash course in the history of fonts. But um, I'm recommending it because it's not just a dry history about fonts. It's another exercise in good storytelling. So the author takes us through people, paces, things affected by these fonts. And he likes to riff on why do we need so many? <laughs> so by his calculation, there are over 100,000 fonts in existence in the world. Uh, if you're like me, um, the, the details, the facts won't really stick. But you'll really appreciate the research and the care put into this book by the author, and, and I hope that you'll be charmed like I was by really just like our common need to just frame meeting and just the perfect font. So my final recommendation is called The Deadbeat, Lost Souls, Lucky Stiffs, and the Perverse Pleasure of Obituaries by Marilyn Johnson. This book is one of my absolute favorites. It's one of, I don't know, one of my top 10 certainly. But incidentally, it's probably also the most uplifting book about death you will ever read. Um, so Johnson takes us into the world of obituary writing. And so at one time, this was sort of a like a backroom gig for rookies at the newspaper. They were assigned the obits as one of the first things they had to do, but now it has since evolved as um a very sophisticated job reserved at least in the biggest newspapers for the veteran journalists and she says at one point i love this quote that um the way obituaries have evolved and and the readership and and the the craftsmanship they keep feeding off each other and she says it's the best time ever to read obituaries and i'm here to tell you it's a great time to die
1: Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library. You can find a transcript of this episode on our website, brooklynlibrary.org podcasts, as well as a link to the book match list right there on the webpage.
0: Borrowed is produced and written by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzie Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Merrill Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. We are recording this from Central
1: Library's Information Commons recording studio. And guess what? If you have a BPL library card, you can reserve time here for free and make your own podcast. Visit our website to find out how. That's brooklynlibrary.org, BKLYN library.org.